Hey everybody, welcome to another sermon episode of the Kingdom Project podcast. I am your host, Marcus Hall. <clears throat> we are continuing in Galatians chapter 3, looking at 26 through 29. So last week, uh, we ended uh, by seeing that the role of the law was a tutor. It was just temporary, right? It was temporal. The role of that was the the discipline in order to deliver or bring uh, a child to adulthood. So he did whatever it took to curb the tendencies, right, um, of, of a, a child to protect them from foolish ways. That's what a tutor does, right? The job is temporary. Uh, when a child reached... Uh, a later adolescence, the tutor's job was finished. All right. So the next part in Paul's process here of interpretive uh, Bible study of the law, if you will, is the focus of a uh, focus of union with Jesus for all believers. All right. So uh, this would include the Gentiles, right? As we will be using the word uh, you you. In verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. All right. It was uh, the last part of 25 that we ended on last week. All right. So, but so 25 and 26, we'll look at the whole whole text. But now that, that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian or a tutor. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. All right. So under the law, Jews were the children of God. Gentiles uh, were seen as sinners, even though Jews were sinners as well. But now Gentile Christians are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And this is a, a shocking revelation to the false teachers, all right? And probably the majority of the Jews who are opposing, especially if they're the ones opposing the gospel of Christ, all right? Gentiles were seen by Jews as re rejected. All right, they're the outsiders. So Jews saw the anybody else that was not a Jew, they were a sinner. The Jews were sons of God, but Paul says Gentiles are sons as well, and the answer is uh, in in that verse because of faith through faith. Since Jesus is the Son of God, all who by faith are in Christ are also sons of God. So Paul claimed that we are no longer under this tutor or this guardian and verse 26 shows why we are not under that any longer its task of bringing us to christ has been accomplished so with this statement paul's declaring exactly what he means by the function of the law being set aside that the law's purpose was to magnify the problem between man and god by showing the sinfulness of 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 sin so that man would turn from his own effort in trying to establish righteousness and accept God's effort in Jesus, right? The purpose of the law was to create the birth pangs, if you will, which would produce the children of God. So once they've been produced, there's no further need for the law. Its purpose was to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. We're not justified because we've performed to a certain standard, right? So since 
our justification hinges upon the obedience of the performance of Jesus and our act of faith in him as our substitute, uh, we cannot be unjustified at a later point because of our lack of credible performance as children of God. So the argument comes up about being obedient, right? How much obedience is enough? Our reply should be, that is faith plus works, which was the very thing the Judaizers were teaching, and that's what Paul is combating in this letter. All right. So now, are there are there changes in a person's life who have been born again? Yeah, absolutely. And as we grow in relation with God by being transformed even more through the reading of His Word and through worship and through prayer, we mature. But we have to get one thing clear. Jesus is the only person who ever lived in a complete, 100% obedience to the Father. All, all humanity have sinned. The only reason that any person can receive eternal life is because of Jesus Christ's obedience is imputed to them because of faith, by faith. Romans 5.19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous, right? So the believer is righteous because of Christ's obedience that becomes ours by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So positionally in our standing before the Father, we are completely righteous and totally obedient because we are in union with Christ. We are in Christ. Christ's obedience and righteousness have been put on our account, imputed to us. That is our position or our standing before the Lord. So being a child of God by faith in Christ simply means that when the truth about Jesus is understood, and that understood understanding is embraced by accepting it as true and valid through faith, then one is a child of God. So when Paul says that we are all sons of God when we put our faith in Jesus, he's um, echoing words of John. In John 1, 12 and 13, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. All right. Going on, verse 27 of Galatians uh, 3. For as many of you as were baptized in, into Christ have put on Christ. So, again, Paul stating that all believers in Galatia had been baptized into Christ. And we have to note the use of the word baptized, all right? It should be clear from the context. Paul's, Paul's not substituting baptism for circumcision here in Galatia so that some type of baptismal regeneration could be applied. Paul's fighting against a work's righteousness. It's not, not substituting one work for another, all right? So this does not mention being baptized in the water. The verse says that the Galatians were baptized in the Christ. So we have to know what that means. And the word baptized is used different ways in Scripture. All right, so we know that the main use of the word is to be dipped or to be cleansed. 
and uh, we think of w- water in direct connection with uh, with that. But to to think of water in direct connection with this verse then would lead to obscurity because the word baptized here metaphorically means a change of identity. All right, so the the basic Christian significance for baptism is identification with Jesus. We are united to Christ, the Son of God, our leader. The literal use of the word baptize, to wash or dip or immerse, makes uh, nonsense in this passage. It makes no sense. Uh, It would be utter nonsense. It makes no sense in this passage. It's only the metaphorical use to identify with can give us the meaning at all, right? So the early writers distinguished between real baptism and ritual baptism. Ritual baptism is immersing someone in water. Real baptism is the act of the Holy Spirit placing the believer in the body of Christ, and that's identification, all right? And like in Matthew 3, uh, John the Baptist clearly distinguished between a baptism of water and a baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the very moment we believed on Jesus as our Savior, we were baptized by the Holy Spirit and were placed into the body of Christ. When we believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit put us there. That's union. All right, It's not physical. It's a spiritual identification. So as, as we were united to Adam... So we are now united to Jesus, and it's the Spirit who unites us to Christ. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. This is union. So Paul has now made the case that righteousness doesn't come from the law, but through faith. He moves to the next logical conclusion, that this righteousness is made available to everyone, not just the Jew, which is what the Judaizers were contending for. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the whole problem among Galatian Christians is that some some still wanted to observe the dividing line between Jew and Greek. Jesus or Paul is essentially saying in Jesus that line's done away with. When we are in Jesus, there's, there's, there is no Jew or Greek. And he's made this point in Ephesians chapter 2 as well. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off um, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into a one new man, establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. All right, so this this has been demolished. It's been taken down that that wall of division. All right, in in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are one, and since this is true, there's no reason to compel Gentiles to become Jews. Jewishness is not superior. God is no respecter of persons. All right, in Jesus, all believers stand on the same ground. Now, in the first century, 
the rabbis quoted a morning prayer that was popular among many Jews of that day. And in that prayer, the Jewish man would thank God that he was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And Paul takes each of those categories and shows them uh, that none of those exist in, in Christ, right? Gentiles, slaves, and women didn't enjoy the same access to God in Israel's formula uh, of worship as the Jews did as free men and, and males. They could trust God for their personal salvation, though. All right, the, the priests in Israel had to be Jews, they had to be free, and they had to be male. Now, in the church, every Christian is a priest, right? Uh, we're, all, we're all one. The gospel makes us equal. Now, There'll be some who will be like, well, men and women have different roles. Uh, yeah, they do. Men and women are different. <laughs> Spiritually, it's all one. <laughs> okay? Verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul now winds up a major seg segment of his argument here in this, uh, this section. In verse 7 of this chapter, Paul had written, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The importance of this uh, lineage gave in verse 9, so, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. All right, that, That's the blessing promised in resurrect, resurrection life. The promise was made to Abraham and his seed. One has to be of the seed of Abraham to be able to receive eternal life. If we are not the seed of Abraham, we cannot be saved. The entire point of Genesis 15 is that Abraham had no ability to alter his wife's barren state by any means. Instead, his faith was simply a decision to take the promise of God at face value and had faith. Your seed shall be as the stars of heaven. It was Abraham's faith to that promise that brought him to be uh, to the uh, to the point of to be accounted as righteous. All right. So those who are like Abraham in faith simply take the promise at face value, and as they do, God imparts to them His righteousness forever. So it's only those who belong to Jesus are Abraham's descendants. Abraham's only descendants are those of faith. Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So if you are, you are an heir, you have a legal right to an, an inheritance. And since we are now members of God's family, we have a right to all that God has promised to his children. And as God's children... We should live in such a way as to honor and bring glory to our Father. So, this is the conclusion of chapter 3. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of like the charter of the New Testament church, the ground of the invincible claim to be the lawful successor of Abraham, the true Israel, the true circumcision that's not in the flesh but in the spirit. The inheritor of the promises and privileges and hope of Old Testament Israel. True Israel, like there's only one, this is not 
replacement theology. Um, the church is Israel, like <laughs> here in the New Testament. So, um, that's the that part that 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 sentence in verse twenty nine. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That winds up the old covenant. It abolishes the law, the temple, and circumcision, terminates the mission of the Jewish nation, ends their exclusive rights and privileges, and provides the key to the to understanding uh, the law, the writings, and the prophets of the Old Testament. It's also a death blow to dispensational theology, which has filled the church for years and aims to reimpose in a age yet to come that all those laws and restrictions which Christ died once and for all to abolish, right? The subtle doctrine that the gospel of Christ's free grace is going to give away uh, or give way to an uh, imagined, uh, you know, millennium of reimposed Jewish privileges is reinforced by the teaching that there will be that golden age or another gospel preached which they will say is the so-called gospel of the kingdom, which uh, whatever way we look at, at it then becomes a gospel of works and not of grace. Uh, because it all then goes to the Jews again while, while Christ sets in a, a rebuilt temple and their sacrifices and priests. So in chapter 3 of Galatians, it's Paul's intent to show that being a child of God is related directly to the matter of believing in the same manner as Abraham did, um, and uh, to whom the promises were given, right? So heirs according to the promise. That's the last words of chapter three, and it's going to be further discussed in chapter eleven. And we're we're just going to go ahead and, and move into that um, verses one through um, yeah one through eleven. This would be redemption, redeemed from the law. So, recapping, we would have to say that the problem of the the believers in the region of Galatia was that whole conspiracy to impose upon them Jewish customs. Some were saying these Jewish rites were essential to salvation, right? Uh, Others were saying they were essential to spiritual growth. Paul totally just he, he's like no <laughs> he, he 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 turns it upside down he just turns it over paul defends his gospel his apostleship uh in the first two chapters and his salvation and growth as a christian were largely independent of men and uh of the apostles in jerusalem but they wholeheartedly accepted paul his message and his ministry as signified by their giving him the right hand of fellowship in 2.9. So Paul's st- willing to stand against everyone to defend the truth of the, of the gospel, even to Peter, and because Peter came under his rebuke. So when men came from Ju- Judea to Galatia, teaching that God had set aside neither the Jewish nation or nor Jewish privilege, Unless the Gentiles became as Jews, they could not be right with God. Paul responds to the Galatians that the only true children of Abraham, the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, blessing and promise, are believers, whether they're Jew or Gentile. 
So the conclusion of chapter 3 is, is the charter of the New Testament church, like I said. So, and so that heirs according to promise is now further discussed and being teased out in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the, the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Okay, so in chapter 3, Paul established on this, this biblical and theological grounds the superiority of grace over law. All right, it's of receiving the blessings of God through faith as opposed to the curse which comes through the works of the law. So he now seeks to illustrate and apply all this by turning to a well-known practice at that time, that of an heir coming of age, so as to enjoy all that he has legally possessed, but which has been beyond his personal control. All right, the world or the word child here is infant. So in that culture, in both Jewish and Greek cultures, they were much more dramatic about the passing from childhood to adulthood. It was a very defined passing, and in the Hebrew culture, uh, still today, it's the bar mitzvah at age 12, which literally means sons of the law. All right, it's at that point the child is no longer a child, but is now responsible for his own behavior under the law because he is now a man. So Paul is saying the Old Testament time, uh, or in the Old Testament times, the believers, the true people of God, were in a in a state of minority, not having come of age. They were treated as as a child in a rich man's household, the heir to all the father's estates and privileges, but not not yet at the age when the inheritance could be properly uh, bestowed. All right, so the child heir finds himself fenced like fenced in or about with restrictions and officers who regulate his life so that he has no liberty to enjoy his privileges but must wait uh, for the time appointed of by the father. All right, so what happens when the date set by the father arrives? The heir receives his inheritance, and the inheritance referred to to here is a, uh, a soteri uh, soteriology, all right? It's a soteriological life, which that's salvation. And this is going to be proven in, the, in verses 4 and 5, all right? So in verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So in verse verses 3 through 5, Paul's going to make this analogy to the status of the believing Jews who lived under the law, all right? The heir under Roman law had legal ownership of his father's wealth. He did not actually possess it or enjoy it. Uh, so the believing Jews had the promises of God to Abraham, yet they were not yet realized or enjoyed. So just as the Roman heir was, uh, was under the, the dictates of the appointed tutor or curator, the Israelites were under the law with all of its restrictions and mediators. So the, t the time for both preparatory periods to end was established by the father. For the heir, it was the age determined by the Roman law or would be speci specified by the father. For the believer, the laws 
tutelage ended at the appointed time when the Father determined for the Son to be sent to the earth to redeem fallen man. So Paul is speaking to the Jews here because he says, we, all right, the childhood of the church was in uh, in Israelite form under the Old Testament. The bondage was the subjection of the people of God to those earthly rudiments or principles of a visible temple, the sacrifices, the circumcision, and all other legal observ- observances in the flesh, which constituted the preparatory condition of the people of God before the coming of Jesus. All right, so we have that the elementary principles of the world. That refers to the observance of the law of Moses. The biblical meaning of the Greek used is the element, uh, like elements of religious training or the ceremonial precepts that are common to the worship of Jews. So Paul is telling us that when the Hebrew people were in their childhood and when they, when they were under the law, it was hard to tell those who were heirs according to the promise and those who were slaves under the law. It was hard to tell those who believed the promise by faith and lived in obedience under the law as an outflow of their belief in that promise versus those who were trying to merit righteousness by works just by obeying the law. It was hard to tell. But Paul says there was a big difference. One was a slave and one was an heir to the inheritance to come. Four and five. But when the fullness of the time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. All right. Notice the contrast here. But during the law period, the believers were indistinguishable from the non-believers. The idea then behind the phrase the fullness of time is when the time was right, that Jesus came at just the right time in God's plan and his redemptive plan and when the when the world was perfectly prepared for God's work it was a time when the world was at peace because there was a pax the pax romana was going on and Paul says that when the fullness of time came God sent forth the son so this implies that the son of God hadn't had an existence before his incarnation we know this so it's a side note John 16:28 I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. All right, so the Savior is often represented as sent into the world and is coming forth from God. So Paul also states that he was born of a woman. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth, born of a woman who was a virgin. So from its beginning, the church has held fast to that biblical doctrine or teaching that Jesus was fully God and at the same time, fully human. This is called the hypostatic union. And Jesus was also born under the law. Sometimes we forget that Jesus was born under the old covenant or that Jesus was under the law. Uh, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He was the one man throughout all history who, who obeyed it and lived by it perfectly. He had to, to be without sin in order to pay for someone else's sin on the cross. So it's interesting when you think about it, how we often look to Jesus as the model of grace living 
right, the model of grace living, and forget that Jesus modeled grace under the law. The law didn't make Jesus holy. The law merely revealed that he was holy, right? So there's there there this is the difference between the experience of the people of God in the Old Testament and those in the New. It the difference is not one of the the of quality of salvation or the nature of faith, but the but in the status and privilege enjoyed. The word redeem comes from the common terminology of Paul's day it goes back to the marketplace where slaves were uh, sold. It literally means to buy out of the marketplace or to ransom from slavery. All right, the slave had uh, had no way of personal deliverance in this case. He was held in bondage, hoping that someone might redeem him. And redemption involved a price and a person to pay that price. So all of this leads to that we might receive the adoption as sons and the word adoption it, it's found uh here and it's in romans 8 15 and and uh, ephesians 1 5 it's uh, a compound of two words the words uh sons and placing so that we may uh take it as signifying the act or ceremony of placing the sons of god in the position appropriate to that high and holy relationship and of investing uh, them with the honor, wealth, and glory, which is the good pleasure of the Father to give them. So Paul says this about redemption or adoption in Romans 8, 15, and 16. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So verse 6 going on says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So Paul broadens his reference to the benefits of sonship, which belong to the Gentile uh, Christians. And the, the change from first person we to the second person you shows that the adoption received by those under the law in verse 5 was also received by the, the Gentiles. In speaking to the Gentiles, he says, and because you are sons of God, how did they become sons? The only answer is faith. So since the Galatians had believed in Jesus, crucified for their sin, Galatians 3.1, they were sons of God. And being sons, God had sent forth uh, the, the spirit of a son into their hearts. That means, right, that every believer, every son of God has the spirit of his son within them. Looking back again to Romans, Paul states in Romans 8, 9, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So this is the, the outcome of God's spirit in our hearts. It is in the words, crying, Abba, Father. All right, crying is tied to the word spirit, so that it it is the spirit who does the crying. But the point is that he utters this cry within our, within our hearts, so that we understand not that that God is the uh, the spirit's father, but rather ours. And 
here we have this Trinitarian teaching then that within this text that God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit who is the Spirit of God the Son <laughs> in our hearts to give us an assurance that we are sons and daughters of God. The Spirit of a Son, right? The, the, the Holy Spirit can be called the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or linked to God the Father. And this is because the nature of God is consistent among the persons of the Trinity. And here the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of His Son because the ideal of our sonship is based on Jesus' sonship. Verse 7, So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So because we are, we are sons, we are heirs. We are heirs only through Christ. We are not the cause, right? We are not the cause of our birth into the family of God. Jesus is. Verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by, by nature are not God's, lower, uh, lowercase g. So Paul's showing that all men are inherently religious. You were slaves to those uh, which by nature are not God's, little g. A person does not have to be deep, deeply committed to some um, re religiously defined God to be a slave to non-gods, all right? All a person has to do is have some objective or goal which they consistently pursue, all right? More money for some, that's a pursuit of lower G, God. Public status in the community, pleasure in the physical realm. Pick something you can pl place a pursuit to a commitment to a God. So in a blanket statement to the Galatians, Paul tells them that they formerly had done service to false gods. He didn't define the specific gods, but he did declare that they all had practiced a religion of their own making. These people may have worshipped Caesar through the uh, Roman imperial cult, or they maybe they were devoted to one of the many mystery religions, which was very common in the Hellenistic world. Others may have been involved in the worship of the star gods or celestial bodies whose movement in the, uh, in the heavens were believed to control life on earth. The, but the point that, that matters here is, is clear. They all worshiped something other than the one true God. And that's, that's the whole point. Uh, e even if you're an atheist and you believe in no God, you worship yourself then. You're, you believe yourself to be in control and you're worshiping yourself. So verse 9 and 10, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Right? So come to know God is an intimate knowledge of him. You did not come to know God because you had more integrity than other human beings around you so that you pursued him until you found him. No. He sought you. And people have a problem with that. <laughs> you did not decide to seek him out. He sought you out. Paul says, or rather, to be known by God. So before the foundations of the world were laid, he, he set his eye upon you in his redeeming love. 
before you ever entered your mother's womb, he provided your salvation through sending his son in your place to the cross. Before you ever desired him, he pursued you. Before you ever called out to him for mercy, he effectually called you in the secret places of your heart. And this is why the Apostle Paul could write in a passage, a passage um, uh, that, that resound, uh, resounds to the glory of God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1.30. It's the eternal God who is infinitely holy and glorious knows you with intimacy and redemptive love. Prior to any demonstration of faith or obedience on your part, he pursued you and he set uh, his intimate knowledge upon you. So our knowing God is conditioned upon his prior knowledge of us. And Paul, Paul states that since you are known by God now, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Notice how the Galatians turn. It was not from God to a life of godless antagonism to all things religious, but it was from God to a system of religion that made them appear all the more committed to God. So this probably come come off as shocking to them all right because they they had no intention of returning to their former way way of life in paganism right they were attempting to make progress in their new spiritual life that paul had presented to them through the gospel but they're trying to learn do that by learning and observing the mosaic law which prohibited pagan idolatry Yet now Paul is asking them, why, why are you turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them now, he asks. So, again, the elemental things, there's the principles or rudimentary things of Judaism, all right? And verse 10 makes that clear. Their observance of special days, months, times, years, the calendars, festivals, all this are more obvious examples of their departure from the true gospel. What he's claiming is that the observance was itself an example of their apostasy. They were assigning something to that activity which was contrary to the truth of the gospel. They felt that the practice of these things would recommend them to God. They believed that their position of favor with God was directly dependent upon their performance of his commands. So this causes a shift in man's faith from God's promises to man's performance. It's legalism. All right, and all those who insist on observing festivals and days and Hebrew calendar years and all that are doing the exact same thing. So we have, we have a promise of eternal life through Jesus if we simply believe the God who made the promise. We are acting by faith. If, however, we add to that promise certain conditions of our human performance, okay, whether it be circumcision, water baptism, festivals, feasts, all these things, whatever, there is then 
can be this inevitable shift in our faith. Either men are saved by faith in the promise of God, or they are saved by faith in their ability to perform the demands of God and work and, and do works. All right. But they're not saved by both. Verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Labored is literally to labor to the point of exhaustion. Paul worked hard among the Galatians. He was con and he was concerned that his labor has, has been in vain. There's the train. <laughs> Paul was not afraid that the Galatians had not come to faith in Christ. Uh, he, he even said, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. We just went through that. So if he believed them to be heirs of God, it is impossible that he feared for their eternal security. All right. So that brings us to his real fear. Paul's goal in Galatia was to establish the believers on the road to maturity in Jesus. His fear was that they had been effective, um, effectively sidetracked so that they would not grow in the maturity. Paul feared that his labor among them was coming to nothing. And with this expression of heartfelt concerns for his converts, Paul closes the entire rebuke section of this letter. And from here, we'll see in the next in next week, that he will now move to his request for a change of direction to to those who have received this letter <laughs>